right, it's our last night. I have loved meeting you. You're all very special, very loving, so easy to connect with and talk to. And so thank you for just kind of roping me into the Hume family. And I appreciate Brian bringing me out here because he's a favorite of Hume. And this has been really, really good. So thank you for that. So special. Um, I loved something that Brian said this morning. Uh, just, just one thing you said. But um, <laughs> no, I thought he said something. I thought he said something that was just so healthy and just so wise when he was making the joke about how, uh, how we all want to work in a way that our ministry lasts for a thousand years. And, and it's true, we do want that. And of course, we want legacy and, and we, we're giving our life to something that we want to endure. And you know, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so there is no question that the church will endure. It's a divine institution, yes, filled and run by fallible people. But just because he said he would build his church doesn't mean my little expression will last forever. And I just think that was very healthy to be reminded that things can come to an end, and that doesn't mean it's failure. And um, it reminded me of of an interaction I had. Um, I told you that I'm part of a college in Kenya that teaches and trains pastors, and the man who founded the college is in his 70s now, early 70s, and so the last time I was there, we were talking about the future because he needs a successor and he needs someone to run with this college, and I said to him, would, would you be devastated if it had to close? And he reacted in a way that really marked me. He looked kind of surprised, and he goes, no. He goes, why would I be devastated? He goes, if we close, we spent more than a decade training dozens and dozens of pastors who have strengthened their congregations. It's been a win. And it was just a freeing thing that Jesus will have his way. He will build his church, and we get to be part of it. And if, if this expression shuts down, he'll have something else for us to do. But I just thought that was a very freeing Great word, Brian. And I wanted to mention to everybody, if you, if you loved that message that he brought from John chapter 2, and you want to dive a little deeper into it, he actually wrote a book um, that's an exposition of that story from John chapter 2. They had it in the bookstore at Hume. I don't know if it's still there, but it's on, it's on Amazon as well, and I'm sure you can read that from where you are. But the book is called Simple. The name is simple, and it's, it's a picture of the vessels being poured out. And then the subtitle says, if we want to see Jesus do the miraculous, we have to be faithful in the mundane. But this is available on Amazon. I think it's only like 100 bucks per copy, but, um, <laughs> but it's, a, it's just a great resource. Um, he, he gave me a copy, and it's, um, it's great. And it's good preaching material. He's such a fantastic preacher, so there's great preaching material in it. And if you're interested, you can go to Amazon and look for that under Brian Holland. But um, tonight, what I'd like us to do is I want to pull just a few thoughts out of John chapter 9. So you could go to John chapter 9, and the whole point of what I want to do tonight is to bring us to a place of an anointing and a commissioning prayer time. And if you're willing to go here with me, I would love to have us pray for each other as a commissioning before we go back down the mountain. But before I get to John 9, um, I want to I make just a couple of comments about church culture and organizational leadership. Um, I mentioned on the first night that we were here that my first impression of Hume was, was really positive. I've been very impressed with the culture and the feel um, up here at the camp. And I'm a feeler, and I'm a sensor, and I'm sure some of you are too, but, but whether we lean that way or we're more cerebral or whatever, we all um, innately pick up on the vibe or the atmosphere of a place, if we all invited each other to one another's homes, we would immediately sense the feel in the home. We would know the, 
the, the tone or the vibe or the ethos of the place. And, um, and I'm not just thinking about Hume. Part of why I'm thinking about this tonight is I've been stalking some of you online since I've met you. So as I've had different conversations about First Baptist Oceanside or different places, I've gone to your websites, and I've been super impressed with the clarity of culture. And your churches are different and different emphases, but, but I can tell it's very intentional what you're putting forward and who you're trying to be and what you're trying to present to the community. And that is so good because I think from an organizational leadership perspective, setting and embodying and insisting on the right ethos, the right culture is the most important thing for organizational health. Um, people have called ethos, the, 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 it's, it's the current, it's the tide, it's the culture of a place. They've called ethos the unstoppable force because ethos overrides programming. And if you have a great ethos, you can be mediocre at other things and you'll still be great. But you can do a lot of things great, and if there's a bad culture in the place, then, then it doesn't work. Have you ever been in a place where they're doing everything right and it just seems like it should be perfect, but it's just still not healthy. Or conversely, you go to a place and ah, it's a little mom and pop, or they could polish this up over there, but it just radiates health and life. You, know, you, you, you can have a, a healing church before you have any counseling ministries or healing ministries if you're a healing person and you have a healing ethos. And I think it's just important for us leaders, I know this whole weekend, this whole week is about just personal renewal, but just as leaders, as we go back, it's important to remember that we are, we are living totem poles. You, you remember the purpose of a totem pole in a tribe? Uh, the, the purpose of the totem pole was to represent the values of the tribe. And we as leaders, we embody the values and the ethos. So if we like where we are, that's great. If we don't, we do have to look in the mirror. And what do I need to change? Because as the culture setter, um, after a while, the place starts to look like me or it starts to look like you. But in these tribes, they would carve the, the animal that represented the value that they wanted the tribe to embody. So if, if they were valuing strength and in fierceness, they might carve a bear. Or if they valued industry and work ethic, maybe they'd carve the face of a beaver. But uh, the totem pole is a beautiful thing because wherever you go in the tribe, wherever you go, if you kind of lose your way or who are we again, it's a reference point to remind you. So you could take a, a young person and an elder could walk the young person and remind them, in this tribe, we're brave. In this tribe, we, we value integrity or vision or whatever it might be but but it's our job to embody and insist on the culture we want and, and I know this is simple but it helps me to remember sometimes that um, that climates determine the fruit that can grow uh, I, I've been really fixated on the whole sequoia and redwood tree thing since I've been up here I walked around the lake twice today it's so gorgeous but I've noticed that there are no palm trees in Hume because it's a different climate. And, and uh, I was uh, helping in a leadership conference um, earlier this summer with, my wife was with me, it was, um, her dream has been to go to Africa and we finally got to do that together. We were um, helping with a leadership conference and uh, it was a, a Q&A and I was asked, how do you take an unhealthy organization and make it healthy? 
And, and of course, there's the spiritual prayer stuff, but this was like a, a, a leadership question. And while I was there, there was a pastor with me from Colorado. So when the question came up, I said, well, I said, there are no banana trees in Colorado. And there are banana trees everywhere in Uganda. Everywhere you look, there's banana trees. And I said, the, the climate doesn't sustain it. But there are aspen trees that are gorgeous in Colorado. And, and I was just making the point that, that if we want a particular fruit, we have to create the climate. So as leaders, we embody what we want to see, and then sustained actions create atmospheres, and sustained atmospheres create climates, and then climates determine the fruit that can grow. And so even with our teams, the things that we value most and insist on, those things done over time change the atmosphere. Atmospheres that persist eventually affect a climate, and then the climate determines what we want to grow. And I know we know those things, but, but let's, let's leave the mountain with a fresh uh, passion. I'm going to embody uh, the vision. In fact, when they talk about the five levels of leadership, um, the, t the ultimate level is, is what they call great man, and obviously it could be great woman too, but the title is great man leadership. And that title is reserved for the person who embodies the vision. When Winston Churchill walks in the room, he just embodies victory for Great Britain. You know, when, when, a, when a particular leader embodies the culture, the spirit, the ethos of what they're after, that's an ultimate level of leadership. And that's what we're after. So um, anyway, thank you for letting me stalk you. And you're doing a good job. So I'm proud of you for what I'm seeing. But let's go to John chapter 9 for just a few minutes. There's a simple thought I want to pull out of this that will, will springboard us into a time of prayer. I'll read the first seven verses. It says, As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva. He put it on the man's eyes. And in verse 7, he told him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I love that phrase. He went and washed and came home seeing. For some reason, it reminds me of the, that famous Latin phrase from Julius Caesar. You remember that? Veni, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. And this is kind of the counter to that. He went, he washed, and he came home seeing. He washed in the pool of sending. Siloam means sent, and sometimes we leaders need a fresh baptism in our sending. Sometimes life gets a little bit fuzzy because our sense of calling has gotten a little bit fuzzy. Before you know it, you can go from the mountaintop to being Elijah saying, I'm the only one left, and why in the world am I here? Um, sometimes life for a leader doesn't come into crystal clear focus until we're immersed in the pool of Siloam again. Do you ever feel that in yourself? Do you ever feel like, I just need to, uh, to be rebaptized into my calling again? I kind of feel like this whole week, 
with the way Brandon has led us, the songs, the exhortations and scriptures, the way Brian has taught, I feel like this whole camp and retreat has been a giant pool of Siloam. It's been a reminder of why we're called and what really matters in our calling and what we're called to. So I hope that we all leave feeling like we've been washed in our sending again. Because the more clarity we have in that, the more clarity we can bring to others. But at the beginning of this passage in verse 1, it says, As he went along... And so just to grasp the, the, the context, just to love Jesus a, a little bit more, let's just back up and, and see what he was coming along from. If you back up a couple verses, Jesus is engaged in one of those battles with the religious leaders. They've been arguing about his identity, and he just sends them over the edge in verse 58. He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And he just makes this incredible declaration, taking the I am of Moses and identifying with that. And they lose it. They pick up stones to stone him. But then notice it says, Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, they were always after him, of course. Sometimes they would just talk about it and not do anything. There are some passages where they actually try to throw him off a cliff or stone him. And it says he walks right through the midst. But in this particular instance, he slips away. So it's a little bit more of the vibe of, of they're sneaking out the back and they're trying to avoid the angry mob. And so as he's slipping away, as he's running for his life possibly, and not really because he said, no one takes my life from me. Um, I actually had a moment uh, recently where I was just feeling so overwhelmed in ministry and then I realized, wait a minute, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. That's Jesus' words. I have the authority to pick it up. I can choose to give my life away for these people. But, but he's slipping away, running from the crowd. And as he went along, so as they're running out back and they're ducking and they're dodging and they're avoiding, he saw a man blind from birth. And he stops. And I love this idea of Jesus on the run and, and gets fixated. And then the disciples, probably bumping into him, behind him as he stops, they see the man, and so then they decide to get theological. Well, we're with the rabbi, we're with Jesus, let's, let's make something of the moment. And so they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I, I think that sometimes uh, we, we have to remember as leaders, part of our calling is to help people answer the tough questions. I know we don't have the answer to all of the tough questions, but there are difficult questions in theology. In our world today, there are very difficult cultural questions that people are asking. And there's, I think there's a tension that's healthy for us to, to live with as leaders. On the one hand, Psalm 131 is kind of a, a freeing passage. In Psalm 131, David said, my, my, um, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have quieted and composed myself. I'm like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. On the one hand, we don't have to have the answer for all the tough questions. We don't know everything about everything. We're not experts about everything. And it's okay to say, I don't, I don't concern myself with things beyond my pay grade. All I know is you can put your, your hope in the Lord. 
On the one hand, that's okay, and it's freeing, and it's true. But on the other hand, we are pastor scholars, and we are pastor theologians, and somebody has to grapple with ethics and application, and this is what the Bible says, and this is this person's reality, and how do they mix? It's overwhelming, but it's part of our calling. We are called not just to sit at Jesus' feet and just adore him. We are called to study and to grow and and be lifelong learners. It doesn't mean we have to have lifelong degree programs that we're in. But, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, It is empirically absolutely proven, no question about it. One of the antidotes to burnout is ongoing education. Ongoing education, without question, helps hold back burnout. Um, uh, Pastor Jack Hayford from the Foursquare denomination passed away in January of this year, and he was very influential in my life. And I was in some classes with him, with a group of other pastors, and he said something so good. He said, leadership that succeeds does two things. Leadership that succeeds, number one, walks softly like a barefoot Moses at Sinai. Isn't that beautiful? Leadership that succeeds walks softly like a barefoot Moses at Sinai. And that's what Brian was talking about and what we've been talking about all weekend. But then he said, but number two, leadership that succeeds is leadership that is always learning, always pursuing education. So no, we're not going to figure it all out. Yes, we're going to have to live in tension in this culture that we're in. No, simple black and white answers aren't going to work for a lot of issues. Yes, there's going to be nuance and application and compassion and how does that blend with orthodoxy, but somebody's got to do that heavy lifting. We are pastor scholars. We're pastor theologians. And so the boys ask this question, who sinned? Um, This guy or his parents, and Jesus instantly says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He instantly wanted to get the the weight of the sin condemnation off of this guy. Man, if if I'm born blind and it's because I, I sinned, that's a heavy weight to bear. Now, sometimes people do sin, and sin, sin always brings death. I say this to my church um, often. Sin brings death every time. If I sin against you long enough, it will kill our relationship. If I sin against my integrity long enough, it will kill my conscience. Sin brings death every time. So yes, people can invite in sin and it can damage their lives. But you know what? It still happens today that somebody goes through a tragedy or a crisis or some problem and people bring out the sin card. Well, is there sin in your life? And, 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 and Jesus was so quick to get this off of him. You know, it's really interesting. Do you remember when Jesus released the Spirit to the disciples in John chapter 20? Do you remember he, he breathed on them and received, said, receive the Holy Spirit? It's really curious language that Jesus uses. He, he, in fact, why don't we just scoot to John 20 for a second? We'll come back to John 9. Jesus... Uh, in this first impartation of the Spirit, made it very clear that one of the central acts of Spirit-filled ministry is getting people freed from the burden of sin. In John 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And that's pretty cool. 
and fascinating that in his post-resurrection state, he could touch a different dimension of physics and walk through a closed door, like light particles that appear and then disappear and reappear in different places. And pretty, pretty amazing and, and fascinating what might be a possibility in some of the dimensions of physics that we can't even touch yet. But Jesus modeled those for us. But he came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What an interesting way to follow up with the release of the Spirit with these disciples. Here's my Spirit. Whoever sins and you forgive them, they're forgiven. What, what is the, what's going on there? I mean, I'm not God. We don't have the ability to, to cancel out a person's sins. But, but I think at, at the very least, Jesus is saying something about Spirit-filled ministry is supposed to free people from the burden of sin. Part of that might be teaching people to repent and confess and be clean. And hey, listen, we, we haven't talked about this this week really, but if any of us are in a place where we keep circling back to old habits or old patterns, uh, a retreat like this is the perfect place to get clean and to drive down the mountain fresh and new and renewed and to do whatever repenting we might need to do. Part of this has to do with helping people um, get free from sin, but I think part of this also has to do with breaking the condemnation of sin off of people. Condemnation is so crippling. Conviction is sweet and it hurts, but oh, thank you because it's good. Condemnation is a wet blanket that just smothers the life out of you. Part of the job of spirit-filled ministers is to break that off of people. In fact, there's a, a lady in my church, a divorced lady, who was an incredible wife. She was the total package. She was a better wife than a lot of the wives and husbands in my church that are still married. She was amazing, um, but her marriage failed. And her husband made certain choices and then wouldn't make other choices. And this woman just was laboring under this condemnation because she's divorced. And churches always cater to the married couples. And if you're divorced, you know, where do I fit in? And, and um, I remember talking to her and just saying, you, you were a success in marriage. You can succeed in marriage even if the marriage itself falls apart. That you're in a relationship with a free-willed individual who's going to also have to commit to the marriage. And she stood, she prayed, she believed, she did all of that stuff. But part of our job is to be so the embodiment of the love and the passion and the grace of God that condemnation just rolls off of people when we get in their presence. So Jesus said, no, it wasn't this man or his parents. He said, this happened, and the this was the birth uh, issue of, of being born blind. There, there were a lot of thises that this could be. This could have been a paralysis. This could have been another issue. This could have been a demonization. This could have been an addiction. It doesn't matter what the this is, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is unbelievable. His area of damage... His area of trauma 
was going to be the backdrop or the canvas or the context for the works of God. Brian was talking to us this morning about walking with a limp. And I think we all know that it's often our areas of greatest brokenness where the most power flows from. You know, Jesus was pierced in what flowed out of him. Forgiveness, life, um, redemption. Uh, Good Friday happened in what followed. Uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, we, we, it, it's healed people that become healers. It's broken people who heal that set other people free. Rescued people rescue people. It's, it's an incredible concept. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. But then verse 6 says this, and this is the message. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. He spit on the ground. Um, I recently did an ancestry test. Have any of you ever done those to figure out who you are and who you aren't? I grew up thinking that we had a lot of Native American blood in us. We were told that. We were told. I, I even thought my spirituality maybe was tied to my Native heritage and that that was part of why I was more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And, and we, we, went, we actually went to some powwows when I was a kid. And my dad told me the lineage. And my dad died a few years ago. We did the, I did the ancestry test. We have this much Native American and it was like literally like, wait a second. But, but it was kind of interesting that, that I had to spit to reveal my identity. Uh, I spit in this little container, and that's how they figured out who I am. Um, what, what's one of the most common DNA tests that people do, aside from ancestry? When, when they swab for DNA, they check the saliva. Uh, where, was, where was man made from on day six of creation. I said day seven last night. I know Adam was created on day six. I, we all goof up up here, but on day six, and then the first day on the job, day seven was the day of rest, but where, where was man made from? The dust, the ground. I think what Jesus is doing here is one of the most profound acts he ever did in all of scripture, because I think it illustrates and embodies everything that he came to do and that God ever wanted to do with humanity. When Jesus spits in the ground, he's connecting the divine DNA to essential raw humanity. And when the divine DNA touches humans, something changes. It's also interesting that you, you, you find DNA in the blood, don't you? It's when the divine DNA through the blood of Jesus touches my raw, fallen, fractured humanity that I become a new creation. Part of our job is to live in that flow of receiving fresh impartation of the divine DNA. We should get better and better and better. We should get, the more we age, we sh the more beautiful and glorious we should become because we're constantly transforming into the image of that divine nature. And what I want to do tonight is this. I want us to pray for each other two things. I want us to pray that we would experience an impartation of the divine DNA. We're supposed to become like Jesus. We, we need a transfusion. I need him to spit in the dust and smear it all over my face all over my thoughts and my heart and my mouth and my actions. I need Jesus in my life. 
So, so um, I have a little vial of anointing oil, and there, there's, no, there's no magic in oil. It's just a touch point. It's a, it's a representation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think Brian has a, a vial of oil, too. Here, here's what I'd love for us to do. Um, I, I want to pray for Steve, and then I would love for you to pray for me. And then we'll just turn, and then the next person can take the oil. And I don't, I don't know if you use oil at your prayer times. I don't do very often, but, but sometimes I like to have that touch point. And I love to just make a little cross on a person's forehead. And then I would love for us just to pray, Lord, bring the divine DNA into whatever area of humanity this person needs. And then let's also pray for that washing in the pool of Siloam. So that we leave feeling clean and whole and full of the Spirit and with our life just focused a little bit more clearly. And if we leave a week like this, like that, it's, it's been a home run. And it's been a good week. So, Brandon, let me have you come back up. And Is Brian still here? I like the glasses, by the way. You look like a pastor scholar. <laughs> Why don't you come up here? Do you, do you guys mind standing? Do you mind doing this with me? And I don't think it'll take a, a terribly long time. And if you're with your spouse, you can pray for your spouse. But we'll, maybe the way to, to move this through a little quicker will be um, you can take the oil, just do the application, and then you can just hand the oil to someone else, and then they can do it. And we'll just make sure everybody gets prayer tonight. And, um, and then we'll just see. Um, the, 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 I, I wanted to say one other thing. As we do this, if any of you feel like you get a word of encouragement for the group, if any of you feel like the Holy Spirit speaks to you, we'll just take a few minutes at the end, too, and, and open up the mic. And there's no pressure. You don't have to stir anything up. But if you feel like God gives you just a, a thought or a word, it, it won't be preaching time. It won't be, let's come up and preach a sermon. But, but if you get a word, let's just see if God would, would speak. Um, he speaks through preaching. He speaks through the still, small voice. And he speaks through one another. So it's, um, it's an honor to be in the trenches with you. It's an honor to be paying a price with you and taking the shots and getting overwhelmed and getting back up again and serving people. So um, let's just pray.